0: WTBN, Pinellas Park.
1: If it's been a while since you've worshipped at your local church, they invite you back. Attend services this weekend. Portions
0: of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: And so the objection that Paul anticipates from them is this. If the law only brings a curse, as you say it does, Paul, a curse upon those who try to attain salvation by keeping it, and if it is so contrary to the biblical message of faith and salvation, and if it is so opposed to the very principle of faith, then why was the law given by God in the first place, Paul? Tell us why. It can't save us as you say, then what's the point? That's actually a very good question. And it's a question that we really need an answer to.
2: That rhetorical question is a good one. It would have come from the false teachers who had gone from Jerusalem to Galatia and infiltrated the church there with a heresy that claimed that Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become saved. They taught that the law of Moses is what saves us. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class taught by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our text is the third chapter of Galatians, and in this passage, Paul pointed out three negatives to the law. Not that the law isn't useful, but because of these points, we can tell that it was never meant to be the means of our redemption. The first negative is that the law demands 100% obedience 100% of the time. Well, that ain't happening, is it? Next, the law never claimed to be the means of obedience. Let's listen now as Pastor Steve develops the third negative thing about the law.
1: The third negative thing Paul says about the law is that the principle of law keeping is completely different from the principle of faith. They are opposites. Verse 12 However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, shall live by them. The point that Paul is making here is that faith and law are incompatible as the grounds of salvation. See, faith says, rely on God for what he has done in Christ. That's what faith says. Trust God, rely on him for what he's done in in Christ. But law says, no, rely on your own efforts yourself so as to try to merit and earn God's favor. In other words, Paul is saying you can't mix grace and law for salvation, which is precisely, folks, what the Judaizers were teaching. Because grace and law are two contrasting principles. One says, done in Christ. The other says, do all you can. And so, now pay close attention to what I'm about to say. In light of all of this negative talk about the law Paul very wisely anticipates an objection and an argument coming from the Judaizers because they were quite defensive of the law, quite protective of the law. Their whole lives were built around the law, and they would be highly insulted by any negativity Paul would have said about the law. And so the objection that Paul anticipates from them is this. If the law only brings a curse, as you say it does, Paul, a curse upon those who try to attain salvation by keeping it, and if it is so contrary to the biblical message of faith and salvation, and if it is so opposed to the very principle of faith, then why was the law given by God in the first place, Paul? Tell us why. If it can't save us, as you say, then what's the point? That's actually a very good question. And it's a question that we really need an answer to. Why did God give his law to Israel when he knew that they couldn't possibly keep it? Why did he give all these ordinances if, if they only bring condemnation and not salvation? Why did God lay down 10 commandments that demand that we obey his holy standards, when he knew that our sinful hearts would rebel against every one of those commandments and we would break them inwardly, certainly, and many times outwardly. What the Judaizers wanted to know is this, what's the purpose then of the law? If, as you say, Paul, it can't save us. Now, Paul knew that this was on their minds. How did he know this? He knew that his opponents were thinking this way. Remember this, as we've said before, it would appear based on Acts 15 that these Judaizers were former Pharisees who came to at least believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were not converted men or they would never say that you had to be saved by the law. But these were former Pharisees who claimed that they were Christians, were actually part of the church at Jerusalem, but they were former Pharisees. Now, Paul was a former Pharisee. And as a former Pharisee, Paul had been trained and raised just like these men. He knew what they were thinking. He knew the disciplines of their training. He knew how their minds operated. And so in this next section of Galatians, Paul, knowing how they were thinking, answers the Judaizers' objections to all of his negative talk about the law by teaching the Galatians and us God's purpose in giving his law. Now, it's going to take us a few weeks to work through this section, but it is a most rewarding section of Scripture because this passage in the Bible, is going to affirm to us some really important truths that affect us daily. For one thing, we're going to see God's character affirm that he is, he is a God of truth. He is a God who keeps his word. You'll also learn why, why salvation has to be by faith alone, can't possibly come on the basis of anything that, that we do. In addition, we'll also learn some very valuable lessons about specifically why did God Give his law, and how could we use the law in our daily lives as a witness to others in sharing the gospel? So, this passage of scripture is very practical, it's very important, it's also quite theological. And the verses unfold this way In addressing the Judaizers, Paul teaches us three key truths about the law. We're going to see one of these truths this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll see the other. Two, And the first truth that Paul reveals about the purpose of the law, which is actually, keep this in mind, it's really a statement on what the purpose of the law is not, more than what the purpose of the law is. Next week we'll look specifically at the purpose of the law. But this first truth we're going to look at is really what, what the purpose of the law is not. What it was not intended to do, what it can't do. The first key truth is this. God never intended the law to supplant or replace the message of salvation by faith. God never intended his law to replace the message of salvation by faith. Here's how Paul develops this, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, with this statement, Paul, notice there's a change of, of tone. He calls them brethren. Remember how the chapter began. He didn't call them brethren, call called them foolish. call called them bewitched. Now he refers to them as brethren, brothers and sisters, because he considers them true, though misled, believers. And as brethren, he wants to teach them. He wants to reason with them about something important concerning the covenant and the promise that God gave to Abraham. Specifically, that part of the promise, which involves the blessings of salvation that we have in Christ. And so he gives them an example, note this, from everyday normal life, something that they would all be very familiar with in order to illustrate an important theological truth about God's promise of salvation to Abraham. Now, before we look at the illustration, I want you to notice the way Paul words his statement. He writes, I speak in terms of human relations. Now, the King James Version translates these words, I speak after the manner of men. Literally, in the Greek text is, I speak as a man. I speak as a man. And based on the way this is worded, some then have concluded that Paul was claiming here that what he was about to say was only his personal opinion and that he was setting aside divine inspiration at this point. Just saying what he thought, his personal human opinion. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everything Paul wrote in Galatians, everything Paul wrote in the New Testament is inspired. It is God's words through the apostle. And in this instance, Paul, note this, he was simply saying that the example and analogy that he was about to cite was something that was from everyday human relationships. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. And the particular human custom that he had in mind, has to do with the way that someone's last will and testament is carried out. His point being that once it is legally ratified, it cannot be nullified or changed in any way. As we might say today, look, it's a done deal. That's what Paul is saying. Now, notice how the apostle presents this analogy, this illustration in verse 15. He says, even though it's only a man's covenant, Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. It's important to understand that although the Bible here uses the word, our translators use the word covenant in this verse, it appears that what Paul has in mind was not a covenant in which two parties agree to something, but rather something closer to that of a last will and testament in which the one making the will determines, solely determines, what he will give to others after his death. Here's the way Bible scholar Philip Ryken explains what Paul is saying. He writes, By covenant, Paul does not have in mind a legal contract for a business transaction. He refers instead to a covenant of an inheritance, what today might be called a last will and testament. And in this passage, the latter is the better translation. A will is not a contract it does not set terms that various parties are obligated to fulfill. Instead, it simply declares what one party intends to do. A last will and testament is a legal arrangement in which one party bestows his or her estate on someone else. It is a grant rather than a bargain. So what Paul is simply saying, by way of this human illustration is that under the legal system of his day, it was common knowledge that one, once a man's will was legally ratified, it could not be changed, could not be modified, it couldn't be altered, it couldn't be adjusted in any way. It was legally binding and stood as is, never to be changed, never to be set aside, never to be added to. It was permanent. Now watch this. The reason that Paul makes this statement about the nature of a will is to make an important point about the promise that God gave to Abraham about salvation as well as the law of Moses. Paul is about to make the point that when God established his covenant with Abraham, the covenant that promised him the blessings of salvation based upon faith in Christ, that covenant was binding Permanent, never to be changed or altered, just like a man's last will and testament. Now, why would Paul, just out of the blue, feel compelled to make such an analogy between a legal will and God's promise of grace and salvation? I mean, where, where did this come from? Why did Paul say this? Who could possibly think that God had changed the terms of his covenant with Abraham so that he might no longer save people on the basis of faith, But law, I'll tell you who thought like that. The Judaizers did. That's exactly what they were thinking. Those false teachers who had misled the Galatians, those former Pharisees, they believed that when God gave the law to the nation of Israel, which came many years after he made his covenant with Abraham, they believed that at that point, God changed the rules. They believed that in establishing the law of Moses, God was establishing the fact that a new era for Israel had begun. And that era was now characterized by keeping the law for salvation, even if it might have been on the basis of faith in the days of Abraham. In other words, they felt that even if they were to agree, concede that Paul might have been right about Abraham being saved, still didn't prove that this is the way that God saves people today. That was for long ago. But when God gave his law, they felt God changed the terms of how a man was saved. Now, this is precisely how the Judaizers were thinking. And folks, if they were right, then we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble because everything Paul has taught us about Abraham being justified by faith, then it means absolutely nothing. It's just history because Abraham's salvation, at their right, it's irrelevant for us since God changed the rules of how to be saved when he gave his law. That is to say, even if the Judaizers, as I said, did concede that Paul's argument was true concerning Abraham, that Abraham was saved by faith and not anything he did, they said it really doesn't matter. It's not important because God set aside that covenant of salvation by faith which he made with Abraham, and he replaced it later in Israel's history with a covenant of works, which he gave to the nation of Israel and applies to all of us today. But praise God. Praise God because Paul's answer to this insidious thought, this dangerous belief of the Judaizers, that it can't possibly be true. can't possibly be true because if on a human level, when a will is settled and ratified, it can't be changed. If that's the case, then how much less can a covenant made by Almighty God be changed or altered, even when something as powerful as the law of God is set in motion? can't be altered. Now, this analogy that Paul gives here about a last will and testament being unchangeable, you know what? It's something we can grasp. You don't have to be an attorney to understand this concept. It's something that that we can grasp, something that, that they understood. That's why Paul used it. It's just how the way the human legal system works. Now, I understand there are variances in the way certain cultures carry out wills, and I understand there are always exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, and technically speaking, which is how Paul is speaking here, wills of inheritance are binding, and they stand as is. They cannot be changed by anyone but the one making the will. And so today, if a man writes up a will that's approved by a licensed probate attorney, and soon after his death, his family members gather to hear what he left them, even if they don't like what they hear, and they're disappointed in their inheritance, they may choose to contest the will, but they cannot change the terms of the will as long as it can be demonstrated that the deceased had full control of his mental faculties when he made the will. This is the way legal agreements of this nature work amongst people. And everybody understands that. But you may not understand how wills and agreements worked in ancient times. You see, at the time that God gave Abraham his covenant, made his covenant with him, there was a legal way that agreements were reached, that everybody understood Now, it wasn't by drawing up a written contract. It wasn't even by a handshake. Legal agreements and covenants in the ancient world were reached by a gory, gruesome blood ceremony. Let me explain. And I'll explain by having you turn to Genesis chapter 15. This is where we see it. It's actually a number of times um, mentioned in the Old Testament when treaties were made, but this specifically is what we need to see in Genesis 15. Now, in Genesis 15, the context is this. Abraham says, I have a servant, Eliezer of Damascus. May he live before you and and act as my son. God says, no, that's not what's going to happen. Verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside. God takes Abraham outside of his tent. And he says, now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, meaning Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith. Now, we read on. Then he said to him, this is God saying to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, this is Abraham's response. O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it. What Abraham wanted is some assurance, uh, how he could know that that God would do this. So God affirmed his covenant with him by a legal ceremony that was common in that day. We read about the ceremony in verses 9 and 10. So he said to him, this is God saying to Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. When a covenant between two people was made in the ancient world, animals were sacrificed and cut in two along their spinal column. And then the animals, each bloody piece, placed on opposite sides of each other so that there would be a space in between them. There'd be an aisle in which the agreeing parties, the parties making the covenant, would would walk down. And while they were walking down through this aisle, they were repeating the terms uh, of the agreement, the covenant that they were making. And the point of doing this was that those making this pledge were affirming that if they didn't keep the terms of this covenant, then they were to be killed and torn in two, just like these animals. This was a rather graphic way of making a legal and binding covenant between two agreeing parties. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, he did something out of the ordinary, something that was unusual, something which was very significant. Look at verses 12 through 17 as I read it to you, and then I'll explain why this is so significant. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror, great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. This is the time in Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward, they will come out With many possessions, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, meaning they'll return to the land of Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces, meaning the pieces of the dead animals. When God made his covenant, he did something most unusual. What we read here is at sunset, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And while Abraham was sleeping, God reassured him that all of his promises would be fulfilled. And then the Lord, note this, symbolically in the form of a smoking, flaming torch passed through the pieces of the dead animals. Now, what's the significance? Normally, as I said, both parties involved in the covenant walk between the, the bloody carcasses, ratifying the agreement. But in this case, God alone walked through the aisle of the animals. Why? Because he was making the very loud statement that this covenant was a promise made by him alone. It was him alone. It didn't depend on Abraham doing anything. It was only dependent on God keeping his word. I mean, Abraham didn't have to agree to, to anything. In fact, he couldn't agree to anything. The man was asleep. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. God caused him to sleep. In other words, this was God's way of stating that he alone stood behind these promises made to Abraham. This is what we call an unconditional promise of God's grace in blessing Abraham and his descendants and that includes the blessings of salvation in christ see the promises god made to abraham were totally unilateral meaning that they were one-sided depending upon god and god only to keep his word abraham didn't have to do anything he just believed a promise that's it
2: no strings attached that's one reason why marriage is such a good picture or at least it should be a good picture of the believer's relationship with Christ. There are no conditions attached to the promises. God's agreement with Moses was that if we do certain things, God will do certain things. Abraham didn't have to do anything. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue to develop these concepts on our next Verse by Verse. Thanks for tuning in. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit, the address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. For more information, call 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Verse by verse is listener supported. If you'd like to help support the ministry, you can call the number I just gave, 727-441-1714, or go to the giving page at versebyverseradio.org. We thank you for your support. Our website also has an extensive library of previous broadcasts that you can freely stream.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn.